Focus on Headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, first off, uh, joining us in the studio once again, Handan. Dan, good to see you once again. Good evening. And joining us in, uh, in our program, Korea Now, for the very first time, another fresh voice, another fresh face uh, joining us here in our program, Chung Sebong Sebom. Uh, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. All right, uh, guys, uh, let's uh, kick right off uh, with some uh, domestic news here, uh, more specifically the economy. I mean, we've been watching uh, not just the uh, the currency exchange rate uh, with the Korean one depreciating against the, against the U.S. dollar, but uh, really the, the stock markets have been very, very bearish here. Two days after Korea saw what's being dubbed as the Black Monday, uh, Korea's main bores tumbled 2%, closing at the lowest point in over two years. This, of course, as Fears over a global economic recession continues to weigh down the market. Talon, start us off and give us the details of this. Sure. Korea's benchmark cost be tumbled yet again, breaking the 2200 level to close at 2169.29, down by 54.57 points from the previous session's close. This marks the first time the main bores plunged below 2200 since July 2020. Tekevi Kazdak fell 24.24 points to close at 673.87. Foreign investors dumped nearly 150 billion won worth of shares, while institutional investors sold nearly 180 billion won as sentiment remained cold by relentless strength of the U.S. dollar, the protracted Russian war on Ukraine, and China's economic slowdown. And of course, all of this on top of persisting fears over a global economic recession and continual aggressive uh, rate hikes by the U.S. Fed. And also the news about uh, the large amount of gas leakage from the Nord Stream pipelines and an apparent sabotage also deepened concerns over energy and the overall economic circumstances in Europe. And I will have more on that in the latter part of today's headlines. Sure. The local currency soared to over 1440 during intraday trading and closed at 1439.9 per dollar, down by a whopping 18.41 from the previous session's close. It's the first time in 13 years and six months that the $1 exchange rate broke the 1440 mark. Korean won was further weakened as the Chinese yuan hit record low against the greenback, with the currency surging to 7.22 yuan per dollar. That's the lowest since January 2008. Uh, but despite the continuing plunge in stocks and exchange rate, global credit appraiser Fitch Ratings has maintained South Korea's sovereign rating at AA- minus with a stable outlook. Fitch's rating for South Korea has been at AA minus, the fourth highest level on the agency's table since September 2012. Fitch said Korea's robust external finances, resilient macroeconomic performance, and a dynamic export sector are balanced against geopolitical risks uh, from North Korea and structural challenges from an aging population. Uh, and just to add one more thing, Finance Minister Chu Kyung-ho has uh, reassured South Korean companies not to be overly anxious about uh, the plunging exchange rate because the government will take all measures they can to weather the storm, uh, which include uh, pumping in uh, about uh, five trillion won worth of uh, emergency funds into the bond market. 
Again, I mean, uh, a lot of experts are also saying that uh, we might even hit the 1,500 Korean won to the U.S. dollar mark as well, which would be quite concerning for a lot of uh, the export-import uh, industry there. But uh, it, it, the, the stock market, I haven't looked at, uh, you know, I, I deleted, what is it, uh, the stock market app that I used to have because, you know, when everybody was doing stocks at the, the peak of the pandemic, you know, everyone... Mm -hmm buying stocks here and there everyone was like a uh, stock market uh, expert and things like that i deleted mine right because i lost money in the stock market then <laughs> the only the one of the few people that lost money in the stock market is that i looked at it again right now a lot of the major stock uh i guess for like for example like kakao uh samsung electronics mm -hmm. all the major mm -hmm. blue chip uh, uh stocks they're returning to levels uh prices seen just before the pandemic mm. is what they're seeing. So That's all right. the gains right now, it's it, it's dipping down. So we're complete. It's it's everything has been reversed because of these high Perhaps interest rates. Perhaps should have waited <clears throat> just a bit longer. Um, yeah, I should have sold later. And then I, 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 <laughs> terrible with this stock market. So I'm, I'm not going to dip into that anymore. Uh, let's go into other issues here. The National Assembly uh, holding a plenary session yesterday, passing bills on uh, major agendas here. Sebon, let's get the, uh, the details of this. Of course, Korea's National Assembly had a plenary session yesterday and passed a number of bills. One of them is for a new support committee under the prime minister to discuss matters related to administrative and fiscal autonomy for Gangwon-do province to successfully become a special autonomous province. Gangwon-do province is expected to become a special self-governing province in June next year. The support committee will grant necessary exemptions and promote regulations to further enhance regional decentralization and strengthen the competitiveness of the region. The National Assembly also passed a ratification bill granting approval for South Korea to sign a free trade agreement with Israel. The ratification came as Korea signed an FTA with Israel in May last year after they struck the deal in 2019 following three-year negotiations. Seoul became the first Asian country to have a free trade deal with the Middle Eastern nation. Through this FTA, South Korea's main export products, such as automobiles, parts, textile, and cosmetics, will have zero tariff, which will help South Korean exporters to gain price competitiveness and gain a foothold in the Israel and Middle Eastern markets. And also, economic ties between South Korea and Cambodia are also set to deepen as a separate bill approving the ratification of an FTA with the ASEAN nation was also given the final nod during the session. Following signing the FTA with Cambodia in October last year, South Korea's Trade Minister An dok visited Cambodia to check the detailed rules of their trade deal. And according to the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy, the South Korean government will soon notify Israel and Cambodia of the completion of all due domestic procedures and have a consultation with them on when to have them go into effect. That's right. I remember, uh, was it last year when uh, the Israeli, uh, Israeli ambassador to South Korea, Ambassador Kiva Torah, he, he joined us in our program and uh, we've had some extensive talk on this uh, free trade agreement and he's been talking talking about that on his SNS recently. So uh, big news there. Uh, in the meantime, let's go into diplomacy. Uh, I mean, certainly a lot of things happening worldwide right now, but uh, at least uh, close to us, uh, Prime Minister Han Su, who's in Japan, 
to take part in the state funeral of the slain former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Uh, he held talks with his uh, Japanese counterpart Fumio Kishida, uh, really urging for Japan's cooperation to improve sour bilateral relations. Uh, Don, let's get uh, more on this uh, meeting between the two sides. SJ, the talks were held for 20 minutes, so there was certainly not enough time to dig deep into the decades-old historical issues that need to be resolved. Uh, but Prime Minister Han made it very clear that improving Seoul-Tokyo relations is mutually beneficial to both countries. He said the two countries are close neighbors and important strategic partners that share democratic values and principles of the market economy. Minister Han also emphasized that the new South Korean government is repeatedly stressing that swift improvement of bilateral ties serves common interests, adding that now is the turning point in which relations can improve. Kishida uh, expressed gratitude for condolences to Abe from President Yoon Sung-yeol and South Korea. The meeting follows a brief summit between President Yoon and Kishida that was held on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly last week in New York, where the leaders agreed on the need to improve relations between the two countries by resolving pending issues. Uh, To give a clearer picture for our foreign listeners, among the pile of unresolved historical issues include Japan's false territorial claims over Korea's easternmost Tokto islets, the issue of Japan's wartime sexual slavery of Korean women, and Japan's wartime forced labor on Korean victims. The compensation for Korean victims of forced labor in particular is perhaps the most contentious issue at the moment as Seoul Supreme Court's ruling that a allows liquidation of Japanese firms' assets in Korea to compensate those victims looks imminent. It has been confirmed that the Yoon administration has formally asked the Supreme Court to fully consider the government's diplomatic efforts, which was widely seen as a move to earn more time before the liquidation order is given to meet halfway with Japan. In New York, Foreign Minister Park Jin also held an hour-long meeting with Japanese Foreign Minister Yoshimasa Hayashi, reportedly suggesting various fresh ways to resolve the compensation issue uh, that the government has prepared. And that compensation resolution is the big thing right now because, I mean, they, I mean, we, we we haven't heard of all the different options here, but mm-hmm. uh, one of the options that we did hear about is the South Korean government paying uh, the the victims of forced labor, and then the Japanese companies reimburse the South right. Korean government later on. But I mean, that, I mean, how likely is it then that the, the Japanese companies are going to actually uh, reimburse mm-hmm. the South Korean government? And of course, yeah, on the flip side, what they're saying is the, what the victims are saying. It's not the South Korean government that uh, made us, uh, forced us to work. And, uh, you know, it's not the South Korean government that should be paying us this. Uh, It's the Japanese government, it's the Japanese companies uh, that are involved with this. So it's it's a tough one. I mean, we we had a uh, chance to talk to one of our uh, correspondents over in Japan, uh, Kosuke, and uh, he believes, and the consensus even in Japan, according to the public, is that these uh, historical issues are going to be eventually unresolved between the two sides because it's 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 too hard to appease everybody uh, mm-hmm. involved with this. Mm-hmm. It's not just the two governments. It's it's also the victims. And, of course, we only talked about the one thing, which is the Japan's wartime forced labor of, uh, victims. But, of course, we have the wartime sexual slavery issues. Mm-hmm. We have Tokto issue, which pops mm-hmm. up every year, uh, mm-hmm. every single year. And that's the other thing, right? Uh, speaking of uh, Foreign Minister Park Jin, uh, not only did he hold uh, talks with his uh, Japanese counterpart, but uh, he also had meetings with his uh, British and Dutch counterparts as well. Uh, tell us what they discussed there. 
Sure State. Uh, just a few hours ago, South Korea's Foreign Minister Park Jin met with British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. It is one of his first international visits as Foreign Secretary following the UN General Assembly in New York, demonstrating the growing importance of the Indo-Pacific tilt and the UK's ambition to become the European partner of choice with the greatest presence in the region. The country's Foreign chiefs had their strategic dialogue at the foreign ministry in Seoul today and discussed cooperation on global security and economic issues, including Ukraine, Russia, and China, as part of the existing bilateral framework. Before officially kicking off their meeting, James cleverly expressed his gratitude to his South Korean counterpart for President Yoon's visit to the UK to attend the funeral of the late Queen Elizabeth II. Their meeting served as an opportunity to emphasize the importance of bilateral cooperation between the two countries, as both of them agreed that South Korea and the UK are a blood alliance that fought together to defend freedom and democracy during the Korean War. Before concluding their meeting, Korean Minister Park Jin once again welcomed his British counterpart to South Korea by saying the two countries are the most ideal partner to address global challenges, including climate change and economic security. Following the strategic dialogue, James Cleverly also met with President Yoon. Meanwhile, Park Jin also had talks with Wap Hoekstra, Foreign Minister of the Netherlands, and discussed the implementation of follow-up measures to June summit, economic security, geopolitical issues on the Korean Peninsula, as well as the rest of the world. In particular, since the two countries have strong partnership in the semiconductor sector, technology cooperation was high on the agenda. It is known that leading Korean chip makers such as Samsung Electronics and SK Hynix are major clients of the Dutch chip equipment manufacturer titled ASML Holding. Uh, we just have, uh, just very quickly here, we have some uh, breaking news uh, coming in just now. Uh, we have the, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, saying that North Korea has right now test-fired ballistic missile towards the, uh, the EC area. Uh, it's breaking news right now. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of information in regards to this. Uh, maybe if we, we do get some more information, uh, we will, of course, uh, update all of our listeners in regards to this. I mean, are you... But just to add one thing, we saw this coming. We saw many more missile provocations to come, especially because the largest scale South Korea-U.S. joint drills yeah, are yeah. taking place, and I believe it'll end tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to have to double-check on and who, and, and when who, it'll end. But um, And who's coming tomorrow to, to Seoul? Uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, right? I mean, it, was, it could be a message to, right. to the United States. And you're absolutely right, Don. It, it is something that we had expected. We'd already seen short-range ballistic missiles being test fired into the uh, the east coast on on sunday i believe and uh, we just got information now that north korea has test fired yet another one uh, again just a breaking news right now we don't have a whole lot of information in regards to this once we do get some more information i'm sure uh, we'll be able to update you guys uh in other news uh speaking of which wow uh perfect timing here south korea's top nuclear envoy kim gun attending a meeting of the nato uh where he outlined the government's uh, bold initiative or the audacious initiative whatever you may call it uh, Tan, 
How did he describe the new roadmap to denuclearize North Korea? Well, during the extended meeting of NATO's North Atlantic Council held in the organization headquarters in Brussels on Tuesday, Special Representative for Korean Peninsula Peace and Security Affairs Kim Gun laid out South Korea's new North Korea policy, including the roadmap of the bold initiative. He explained that the aim for deterrence of North Korea's nuclear threats, uh, North Korea's abandonment of nuclear programs and denuclearization through diplomacy and dialogue. The envoy stressed that in order to lead the North to the path of denuclearization, the international community must demonstrate that North Korea's will to achieve that goal no, uh, excuse me, the international community's will to achieve that goal is stronger than the North's will to continue its nuclear development. Mm. He also briefed the council on the North's new law authorizing a preemptive nuclear strike under certain circumstances and the regime's continuing advancement of its missile capabilities, having conducted 32 ballistic missile tests, uh, including the one fired just now would make it 33 33, ballistic missile tests this year alone. Members of the meeting noted that North Korea's nuclear issue is related to European security, sharing views that the threat must not be overlooked even during the ongoing war in Ukraine. 30 NATO member nations and the soon-to-be members Sweden and Finland, as well as NATO's four partner nations in the Asia-Pacific region, namely South Korea, Japan, uh, Australia and New Zealand also took part in the meeting. Yeah, again, I mean, with uh, the audacious initiative, it's already been shut down by North Korea. And although, again, uh, both South Korea and the U.S. have been pushing for a dialogue uh, with the North, I mean, the North is not responding to it. I mean, they, they basically said, no, we don't like any of the deals that are put in place. Uh, and the only, and we, Don, we mentioned this before, but the only thing that North Korea wants to hear at this time is sanctions relief. Now, the problem with that, if the, let's say, uh, Audacious Initiative 2.0 calls for sanctions relief on North Korea first, uh, and then, uh, I guess, uh, denuclearization later, then the U.S. is going to go, mm, no, we're, we're not going to go with that. We're mm-hmm. not going to like mm-hmm. this. So it, it's, it's, it's going to go nowhere is the big problem at this time. Uh, the, old, the other option is, of course, kind of, you know, squeezing North Korea with the, you know, UNSC resolutions. But, of course, China and Russia uh, is going to continue to veto that. So, I, un- unfortunately, it really is going nowhere. Uh, but uh, the NATO has accepted South Korea's request to establish the country's mission to the alliance. Uh, the acceptance comes about three months, I believe, after our government first announced plans to create a mission in NATO in June, from what I understand. That's right. If you recall, South Korea announced its plans to establish a mission to NATO in June in time for President Yoon sung yeols participation in NATO summit, which made him the first South Korean president to do so. And on Monday local time, NATO's highest decision-making body, the North Atlantic Council, agreed to accept South Korea's request to designate its embassy to Belgium as the country's mission to NATO. The council said this marks an important step in NATO's long, strong partnership with the Republic of Korea. It went on to say that uh, South Korea is an active NATO partner and the partnership with Seoul has strengthened since 2005 based on shared values. It assessed that political dialogue and practical cooperation are being developed with Seoul across areas including nonproliferation, cyber defense, counterterrorism, as well as disaster relief. Ambassador to Belgium and the EU, Yoon Sun-gu, will also serve as NATO's representative. South Korea was the last in line to set up a mission to NATO as that of three other NATO partner nations, Japan, Australia and New Zealand, have already been established. 
Other news, uh, there was a regular session of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or the IAEA, uh, in Vienna yesterday. Uh, South Korea requesting it to provide supports on very important issues uh, that are directly related to the safety of Korean citizens. Uh, Sebon, tell us about this in detail. Yeah, sure. At a regular meeting session of the IAEA in Vienna yesterday, South Korea urged the UN nuclear watchdog for a thorough verification of Japan's planned release of wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. Seoul's Vice Minister of Science, Utesok, delivered his deepest concern that it is unprecedented to release wastewater from a crippled nuclear power plant into the ocean and called on Japan to transparently share details of the process with the international community. He also emphasized that the treatment of nuclear waste water must abide by international laws and regulations and asked the IAEA to include South Korean researchers in the agency's verification team. Currently, Japan stores radioactive water in storage tanks at the Fukushima plant. However, as the storage capacity is expected to be full as early as the fall of 2022, Japan finalized this plan in April to start discharging radioactive water into the sea in 2023. And on a separate note, Vice Minister Oh also asked to rally support for efforts to rid the Korean Peninsula of nuclear weapons, stressing that North Korea's nuclear program violates the resolution of the UN Security Council and poses a great deal of threat to the entire world, just as we have seen today. So South Korea's National Intelligence Service actually hinted at the possibility this afternoon that Pyongyang may implement its seventh nuclear test between October 16th and November 7th. And meanwhile, South Korea's UN administration recently unveiled its audacious plan as a master plan for the denuclearization of North Korea and promised to provide a set of incentive packages if North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, regarding the IAEA proposal to establish a nuclear safety and security protection zone around Ukraine's nuclear power plant, known as ZMPP, Vice Minister Oh once again expressed the South Korean government's support. IAEA Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi first proposed such a zone earlier this month, saying shelling there over the past several weeks represented a constant threat to nuclear safety and security with potential impact on critical safety functions that may lead to radiological consequences with great safety significance. He said, shelling on site and in its vicinity should be stopped immediately to avoid any further damages to the plant and associated facilities. Yeah, Rafael Grossi, I remember uh, he mentioned uh, setting up a safety zone around the, uh, the supposed uh, nuclear power plant. Uh, But the Russian side is basically saying, well, that's kind of your move to try to get rid of us. And uh, no, we're not going to try to get out of here uh, and things like that. And they let the inspectors in for a few days and say, you got to get out because if you guys are going to stay around here, because then we're going to get all nervous. They think that you're going to take this back from us. And so this is it's it's a very dangerous zone, guys, by by the way. And this is, I I think, like one of the biggest uh, nuclear power plants in like all of Europe or something like that. Uh, Speaking of... Ukraine. Uh, this is the that referendum that we've been watching very carefully. The results of it, I'm not surprised. These four Russian-occupied regions in Ukraine uh, voted overwhelmingly in favor of joining the Russian Federation. Uh, this according to Russian news outlets. Uh, Don, what's the latest on this? 
A uh, referendum was held in four Russian-occupied regions in Ukraine, if you can call it a referendum, that is, uh, Mm -hmm. in the past five days, from last Friday through to Tuesday, on whether to be a part of Russia. Now, those regions are separatist-controlled Luhansk and Donetsk, and Russian-controlled Kherson and Zaporizhia. When combined, those regions add up to about 90,000 square kilometers, which is about 15% of Ukraine's total territory and equivalent to the size of Portugal. And preliminary results showed, according to local election committees, all four regions voted overwhelmingly in favor of joining Russia. The Donetsk region voted over 99% in favor, and the Luhansk region over 98%. Over 93% of the ballots cast in Zaporizhia and about 87% in Kherson supported Russia's annexation. Now, Sebum will get to uh, more details on this, but many are calling the referendum a sham as local Ukrainian officials reported numerous incidents of voter coercion in the five days of voting, with photos and videos popping up on social media indicating a process that was neither free nor fair. The voting took place often with armed officials going door-to-door collecting votes. Yeah, same was said uh, during uh, the 2014 uh, referendum for Crimea, right? Uh, And the the thing that was kind of really striking was the fact that they deliver these ballots door-to-door, and like you said... (laughs) Uh, and then you have armed officials going door to door to collect these votes. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen there. Are they going to be threats? I, you know, we, we don't know. And there was actually a lot of reports saying that uh, none of these, uh, the results of these polls uh, are n- nowhere near uh, fair. But again, I mean, the, the Russians, Russia's motive, uh, it's, it's very obvious here. Mm-hmm. But how is the referendum being analyzed by experts and political watchers? Well, as you know, Russian forces in Ukraine have suffered serious setbacks in recent weeks, both in the east and south of the country, which observers say has pushed Russian President Putin to rush ahead with the vote to cement Moscow's authority there. And they say that Putin needed a turning point, a change through which he can ramp up and justify Russia's attacks in Ukraine. Putin, after a series of humiliating defeats, said Russia would use any and all available means to defend its territory, implying that after the four regions were annexed, Moscow could deploy strategic nuclear weapons to repulse Ukrainian attempts uh, to take back the territory. Swift follow-up measures of the annexation are expected, with Putin widely expected to address the parliament on the referendum results and sign legislation formalizing the annexation all within this week. And many pundits point out that Russia is following a similar pattern that we've seen when the Kremlin hastily staged a referendum in Crimea over eight years ago after Russian troops seized that part of Ukraine in 2014. It took less than a week for the Kremlin to sign the final document of Crimea annexation since the day of the referendum. Now, I, I do understand that in the regions like in Crimea, in places like Donetsk and uh, places like uh, Luhansk, there are a large number of people who are in support of Russia. And, and this is a fact. There, there are people who actually yeah. do consider themselves more Russian than Ukrainian. My question is, can it really come out to 99% in favor, 98%? (laughs) That's the thing that I question, right? Mm -hmm. Was it a fair ballot in the first place? Um, But, I mean, this referendum, I mean, it was very controversial back in 2014. It's very controversial right now. Uh, It's it's globally controversial right now. Mm. And it is going to soon now go into the next 
procedure, which is to formally annex these four Ukrainian regions into Russia. Uh, let's uh, sample. Let's get the. What's been the reaction of the results of the the referendum voting so far? Yes, let's. Oh, look into that. As Daeun just reported, the referendums ended in absolute favor of Russia. And against this backdrop, the West as well as Ukraine are strongly raising their voice to condemn Russia's sham referendums. Ukraine's President Zelensky warned yesterday that Russia has just concluded sham referendums and attempts to annex Ukraine territory will rule out any talks with Moscow as long as Vladimir Putin remains president and calls for Russia's complete isolation and tough new global sanctions. Speaking to the UN Security Council by video link, he urged additional military and financial support to defend Ukraine so the aggressor would lose and clear and legally binding guarantees of collective security for his country in response to Russia's latest grab for Ukraine territory. And President Joe Biden also raised his voice against Russia condemning the results of referendums. As soon as the voting results were revealed, the United States announced that it is preparing a new $1.1 billion arms package for Ukraine on top of the already provided $15 billion military aid. It is expected to use funds from the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative by Congress to allow the Biden administration to procure weapons from the industry rather than from existing U.S. weapons stock. The package will include high-mobility artillery rocket system accompanying munitions, various types of counter-drone systems and radar systems, along with spares, training, and technical support. Washington is also preparing a new round of sanctions against Russia if Moscow decides to annex these areas into Russia's territory. The U.S. also introduced a resolution condemning Russia over the referendums and declaring that the U.N. Security Council does not support the use of force to redraw borders during a Security Council meeting on Tuesday. The resolution, however, is expected to be largely symbolic, as Russia will almost certainly veto it. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield said that if Russia chooses to shield itself from accountability, the U.N. General Assembly will send an unmistakable message to Moscow. Of course, uh, even if uh, Russia, I mean, there's even talks about uh, putting Russia out of the, uh, you know, that the UN Security Council, uh, is it a permanent uh, membership there? Uh, There's also China. China is going to probably veto uh, as well. Uh, in the meantime, well, let's go into this uh, next piece of news. Uh, it's uh, we're we're in fall right now. Uh, winters are right around the corner, which means like natural gas a shortage of it. This is going to be the big topic, I'm sure, uh, in the coming months. Here, uh, leaks have been identified on the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea connecting Europe and Russia. The pipelines, again, I mean, very crucial uh, in delivering these uh, Russian natural gas to Germany. And they have been really central to the energy crisis that's uh, really enveloped uh, Europe in the wake of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tan, uh, what's the latest uh, development on this? Well, Sweden's National Seismic Network said Tuesday that it registered two explosions near mysterious leaks on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. One blast occurred early Monday and a second occurred later that day. The news came after two leaks were detected in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and the other one in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. While neither pipe was operating at the time the leaks were discovered, both were filled with gas, according to various foreign media outlets. Officials 
said a pressure drop was detected in the Nord Stream 1 undersea gas channel soon after a similar fall was detected in Nord Stream 2. Both of Nord Stream 1's two lines are affected, while one of Nord Stream 2's pipelines showed a drop in pressure. Now, this has sparked fears of a possible sabotage, and the Danish and Swedish prime ministers said an assessment by authorities indicated that the leaks were not accidental. The European Union's Ursula von der Leyen warned attacks on European energy infrastructure were unacceptable. Meanwhile, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov also told reporters Tuesday that the leaks were a cause for concern and acknowledged the possibility of sabotage along the pipeline. He said no option can be ruled out right now. Oh, so Russia's also calling sabotage mm-hmm. on this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. Chris Rhodes uh, over in the UK chiming and says, uh, in quote-unquote, uh, leaks. No, but uh, serious note here. Uh, right now, I think we've talked about all the different things that has resulted uh, because of the war in Ukraine. Months from now, this is going to be the big thing. Uh, it's really gas. concerning, even yeah. for South Korea. No, you know, South Korea, especially because what what's happening ever since the uh, ever since February when the invasion has happened, uh, Australia was the major import. Or I should, okay. So South Korea was getting most of their vast majority of their natural gas from Australia, uh, and Australia was cool with that at the time. Uh, but they're starting to realize now that there's going to be a worldwide shortage of natural gas, and they feel uh, that they're going to also have a shortage of their own natural mm. gas. There's a very good chance that they're not going to be uh, exporting their natural gas. Mm. And so, you know, we talked about I think yesterday on the show uh, that the the consumer prices it seems like it's on a down, slowly going down right now is what they're saying. Uh, because the oil prices are dipping a little bit. Mm-hmm. But once the natural gas prices start skyrocketing during the winter time, it is going to be havoc. And uh, again, inflation, it's going to be uncontrollable. And of course, uh, the, the, the interest rates are going to continue to go up. And then the U.S. Fed, they're going to continue to raise their interest rate. And then the <laughs> Korean one is going to tumble. You know, there's even people saying that the Korean one might even tumble down to like 1,800 right, right. is what they're saying. So That's- just all we're hearing is all these gloomy and grim paintings, at least until the first half of next year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what they're saying. I mean, you know, you ask any uh, economic expert, when is this inflation uh, crisis going to be ending? And they, they say on, on a positive no, like optimistically, the first yeah, the first quarter of next year is what they said, but uh, it's going to continue on. Nevertheless, guys, thank you very much for joining us in our program with your reports and your insights. Heaven, welcome to our program. Stay safe, guys. We'll see you guys again. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.